Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners, we are back on a heck of a run, heck of a run for guests. We had uh, we had Ben Freeman from CIP talking think tank, foreign funding. You know, we've had just about everything from scholar to military officer to, you know, kind of random ice cream man and related to the minister of ice cream. Uh, and me and the uh, new Eisenhower project we've been talking about um, is, of course, Karen Gutowski, who is one of our, you know, senior fellows. We, we're basically right around 12 apostles at this point. And, uh, you know, we were really happy to bring her on board. In fact, Colleen Rowley, uh, our kind of mutual friend, had said at one point, how do you not have Karen on this team? And I said, oh, man, like I... I really need to. And I had first, I think, like many Americans in some cases, I think, first seen her on, you know, the Why We Fight documentary, which I had watched after the Iraq surge, which I think was not the intent of the filmmakers. But it's when I sort of really got into the critical side of the war. So I was, of course, like, yes, let's let's reach out to her. So just for for basic background, for those who don't know, uh, Karen is a retired U.S. Air Force officer. She retired in 2003 after 20 years in uniform. Uh, she had a variety of assignments, but they included uh, Pentagon desk officer and various roles related to the National Security Agency. Uh, after retiring, she became a noted critic of the U.S. involvement in Iraq, uh, but she was particularly known for her kind of you know, essays and whistleblowing surrounding failures of intelligence, the politicization of the Iraq war, and just everything leading up to that sort of grotesque moment that we were all living through in 2001, two, and three. Um, uh, after that, she's you know been writing for Lou Rockwell and lots of other locations for a long time. Uh, she, she ran in the Republican primary for the U.S. House of Representatives in Virginia. And one of the things we're going to talk about is you know, because I like to geek out on this stuff, as uh, Henry knows, you know, she she worked on Africa, on sub-Saharan Africa, both in uniform and then also in scholarship, you know, writing books on the subject. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, just she's done a whole lot, both in the 17 years since leaving uniform and the 20 years within uniform. I mean, you could almost argue that what we're talking about is two full military length careers in very different ways or in, in very different ways of doing it. So she has uh, a master's from Harvard, uh, from the University of Alaska. You know, her thesis was on Angola and, and the Reagan doctrine, which we're going to talk about. And, and she was a founding member 
of the veteran professionals for sanity, which has some, you know, some similarities to the project here uh, at the Eisenhower Media Network. So now that I've uh, laid out way too much flattery, Karen, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And, and uh, you know, it, it, when you go through all those things, it's, it's, uh, it is a lot. It is a lot of uh, uh, things, but, um, you know, that's part of, that's part of what we, what we do. I mean, uh, people that go into the military, uh, tend to be people that think about what is their role in the bigger picture. Um, in fact, I think that's a recruiting. <laughs> I think that's one of their recruiting mechanisms. You know, right. joint. You know, you've, you've got a you've got an impact to make. So, um, you know, so I, I think in the military, and of course, my half of my twenty year, the first half of my twenty year career was during the Cold War, and that was um, it, things were things seemed. Maybe I was young, but things seemed simpler then. Um, it wasn't hard to hate communists. <laughs> you know, it wasn't hard to, um, I mean, it wasn't even hard to believe the CIA and U.S. intelligence um, about Russia at that time, even though in retrospect, you know, we know that, that a lot of that intelligence was almost as politicized as, as what uh, came later, you know, and what continues to, to occur. But um but those first 10 years were very simple. And I know that, uh, of course, I was, I was uh, always interested in foreign policy and things like that. And I was working on my master's degree. So I was reading and trying to understand. And I remember, uh, I guess it was right at the time that the wall fell. And I was taking a class on Eastern European, uh, Eastern European countries, or I forget the name of the course, but it was studying the uh, satellite, the, the Warsaw Pact countries. And we had to choose, we had to predict of all of these countries, uh, which one would be free first and which one and separate from the Soviet Union, which would be free at the last. And I remember uh, my expectation was 100 percent wrong. Uh, and I, it sticks with me. Um, I felt that those countries that had been most oppressed, most repressed, like Romania, would be so mad you know they had it up to here uh that they would be the ones and of course that's not the case at all and it's never the case um the case it was the polands the czechoslovakians the most um uh free in a sense the most uh, uh with access to free information that those with mo more access to ideas um more access to organization more access to communication beyond uh just their own country those are the ones that uh, got their freedom first. And of course, it wasn't given to any of them. They, they, they took it. Um, and I think that's, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in this country. We haven't had to take our freedom. Uh, we, we take it for granted is what we do. Um, but anyway, I remember I was so wrong. And, and, and uh, so, so I was always interested in looking at how things happen, how things change. And uh, then my second half, so, so the wall fell. So the union shortly thereafter uh, came apart. And the Warsaw Pact was one of the first things that collapsed. And I thought, well, this will be the end of NATO because, of course, NATO <laughs> had grown up as, as a, a pure response to the Warsaw Pact organization. And, um, of course, that was not what it did. NATO began to expand, looking for new members. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not what I expected. But, of course, that is I should have expected it um, because how NATO responded to a changed environment, which was to... Um, uh, shift their focus in order to keep their funding coming, uh, no matter what the cost uh, and how silly it might be. Uh, 
that's actually the rule. <laughs> that's actually how it works. So, you know, I had a couple of awaken awakenings in those early 10 years. And then the second half of my career, um, of course, that's when I got into uh, uh, military affairs, that kind of thing, foreign military affairs, and that, and uh, working the Pentagon, of course. And of course, my last couple, three years was up at OSD, and that's where I was exposed to our Africa policy, which, of course, we can definitely talk about. We should talk about that. And uh, and then, of course, looking at how the Iraq War was coming down. And I was in the Pentagon, at, you know, on 9-11, and that was kind of the kickoff, uh, uh, well, really the kickoff for what we did in Iraq. Because you remember, even that the very day, it happened. They were, uh, how can we tag this? How can we put this on Saddam Hussein? Because they wanted to go in so badly for the second Iraq war. But anyway, I'm sorry. I've talked to you long. Right. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Well, like sweep it up. Right. it and not uh, exactly. on the snowflake. Exactly. Yep. So, so if I could back up briefly, uh, there's two things that struck me about your background. And I'm big on connections and timing. And I read into things too much as a rule. But and then some of the things you said. So the first thing is, you know, you entered active duty, I believe, in, in 1983. Is that correct? Yeah, early 83. So, you know, so, you know, I, I guess I'm interested in kind of backing up to, you know, a little bit of your sort of uh, youth uh, personal decisions to join, you know, keeping in mind that while everything's not about gender and identity politics, as you know, I know <laughs> and uh, get myself in trouble for saying you know, this was the time only three years, for example, after the first, you know, females are graduating from West Point. So, so this is like an interesting time to be joining the military. And so maybe we'll start there. And then I've got a question about the phases of your military as well, your, your career, that is. Yeah, um, well, what what I did when, uh, well, my dad was in the Navy for four years and he used to tell great stories about uh, those four years and uh, his brothers. I mean, he would come from a family where a good many of them served in the military uh, and I had cousins, I had much older cousins who were in Vietnam and it, they did it out of patriotism. You know, it was like maybe misplaced, but I mean that, you know, this was kind of our, our culture. I mean, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, but my folks are from Southern Ohio. So it's still part of that um, uh, hillbilly elegy type <laughs> countryside, you know, that Appalachian uh, uh, part right, of the right. United States. But anyway, so I think, well, all my, I have two younger brothers and we all went in the military. Uh, and I also needed money to go to college. So I applied for uh, various scholarships and I got an Air Force ROTC scholarship in high school. So, you know, that kind of clinched the deal. And um, but yes, I, I, I think I applied to. I don't know which I think I applied to one of the academies. I can't remember which one it was. Um, I didn't get in. I didn't get a uh, I forgot to I didn't understand the process of getting with your congressman. But um, but still very interested in college in general and not have to pay for it because I didn't have the money to pay for it and also interested in serving in the military. And I guess I, you know, I was probably a tomboy because I know in uh, college, I, you know, I skydived, I did all kinds of things like that. So I was probably one of those people that is, is uh, uh, <laughs> looking for experiences kind of thing, you know, um, physical challenges. And uh, anyway, so, the Air Force gave me a scholarship, and so I went in the Air Force. And uh, that's, I don't know, I didn't particularly, yeah. I don't have a lot of relatives in the Air Force. Most of them were Navy and Army. But uh, that's how I got in. Right. And then what's interesting about your career, as I was just kind of looking at the years, I mean, one could argue that essentially you were part of three distinct phases in, you know, the the American military experience of, of the modern era. So like your first 
eight years is you know end of the cold war but you're coming in during you know like abel archer the kind of heightening of the cold war the next wave under early reagan years then you've got like the triumphalist 90s you know clinton years post wall coming down america can you know can do anything right the unipolar moment and then at the tail end it's kind of the the 9-11 in response and so you know having gone through those three phases were there uh institutional changes that you saw where there are policy changes that you that you saw at the time or maybe even more so in retrospect in those different phases well, that's a that's a good question and it's it's uh i don't know for sure i i know i learned more as as every year passed you know i i'm learning how it works and kind of how policies are made and i'll, I'll tell you a couple things that and maybe this is something we want to talk about later, but why I kind of became a critic, a critic of, of uh, a lot of what I was seeing, just as far as that institution of the DOD and, of course, the Congress that, you know, the government that, that has such uh, adventurous DOD, which we, we've had for all that time. Um, so in the Reagan times, remember, remember the uh, Iran, what is it, Contra, Iran-Contra thing? Right. And, and you remember the... Uh, Oh, the, the Marine that was up there in his uniform testifying that he didn't, that he was glad that he gave, that he participated, uh, Ollie North. Ollie North, right. right. And there were a great many, uh, I would say, Reagan supporter type people. And of course, I was a supporter of Reagan also, but a lot of people in the Christian coalition, uh, other conservatives, communist hating type folks, which I, uh, you know, I'm part of that, I guess, at the time. But a lot of them felt that Ollie North was a hero. And I know at that time, my brother, my younger brother was in the Marines. And so I remember talking to him. I was, I think I was stationed in uh, Alaska at the time, toward the end of that tour. And I, I remember talking to him on the phone and I said, Hey, how about that Ollie North? You know, he's a Marine like you. And my brother's response was very, uh, <laughs> it was opposite of what I thought it would be. He was, he was like, no, he, we are not, we're not proud of this guy. Um, this is not what, Marines are about, you know, we, we follow the rules. We don't do policy. We don't, we don't pursue policy for our own political agenda. It, it, uh, anyway, he didn't talk in those, in those terms, but that was the impression that I got. So, um, so I got to see the Iran-Contra and how, uh, kind of for someone who is in the military and is kind of proud you know, of the country, you know, you see that and you, you learn more about it. And of course, we're still learning a little bit more about it. It, it kind of uh, shakes your confidence and you realize there's something else going on here. What is this institution capable of if, if this is what can happen uh, and does happen with the involvement of so many uh, uh, folks, you know, politicians, political appointees uh, and members of the military? How, how does this all work? So kind of uh, a little bit eye opening. Um, you mentioned Clinton, of course, and, and I was in the Pentagon on the air staff when uh, uh, Clinton was going through his impeachment process, and uh, early on in that impeachment process, he launched missiles at um, Baghdad and some other places in Iraq and blew up something. I forget what it was. And they, we called them the Monica missiles. I, I'm not sure we, we weren't the only ones that called them that, but, you know, it was a military response to a domestic political embarrassment of some sort. You know, how does the president show that he's, you know, a tough guy or, you know, how does he make his critics happy or whatever? You know, he bombs and bombs a country. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. And I sat with the guy I worked with at that time was a fighter pilot on his, on his air staff tour. And he was the kind of guy that, you know, 
he wished he was back in the cockpit. They most pilots are like that. They they prefer to fly, and this guy was like that. But he's really really wise and smart. And um, we, they did target. Um, they worked on targeting with with other parts of the air staff. And about let's see, late about the, well a couple years before nine eleven, uh, he, he I was talking about well what how are you targeting? He goes well it's really we've bombed everything we can possibly bomb about 10 times. So we just kind of go through and, you know, re redo it. I mean, but this, the futility and the idiocy, uh, the expense, the cost, the waste, all of this, he, th this fighter pilot who would prefer to be in an airplane dropping these bombs, he didn't really care how stupid it was if he was dropping them. Cause that's kind of what his job was. But when he's back in the planning side, <laughs> you know, it's like, God, this is so insane. And, um, well, it's kind of like, of course, I had read, uh, uh, as we all have, I'm sure, um, Catch-22, but um, took place in a different era. But I think the fundamentals are largely the same. So um, I guess you could say I got more cynical over time. Did I? And I, as I learned more about the institutions that I was a part of, um, my cynicism increased. Uh, what, what were these institutions really about? And I think they were about um, what all bureaucracies are about, which is uh, growing your budget, and uh, growing your importance relative to uh, other competitors for that budget. <laughs> so that's, you know, pretty simple. Defense doesn't really come into it. And of course, I think it's clear our government, our military in the United States today and for some time has not done defense. Uh, the very fact that I'm sitting in the Pentagon uh, that, that's being attacked on 9-11, um, probably what we would consider the most secure location on the planet, um, not defended there that's that kind of that kind of <laughs> sealed the deal uh for me this is our government doesn't uh, our pentagon doesn't do defense but it took me a long time to get to that point it took took many years of um trying to be hopeful well maybe this is just an aberration to finally understanding how it really works so karen uh you you and i actually were at the uh at the Pentagon at the same time, very briefly, um, shortly after I got I uh, joined up um, in uh, February '03, my my MP company got sent to the Pentagon to do security. Oh, cool! And uh, around that time, or I think we got there like on the 22nd of February. It was just before this huge snowstorm that that just covered DC. Um, but I ended up spending five months uh, doing guard shifts. Um, near the construction site where the where the plane hit the building, um, you could say that much of my early time in the army was both figuratively and literally shaped by 9/11. I'm curious, could you give us a quick breakdown of your time at the Pentagon and how some of those experiences drove you to a a new understanding about neocons and the political nature of foreign policy more generally? such as being told to say nothing positive about the Palestinians. And what was the environment there as far as personnel and atmosphere, both before 9-11 and in the lead up to you becoming a whistleblower over Iraq? Mm -hmm. um, well, I went to the Pentagon initially in uh, the spring of 1998, and I had been at NSA. I was right, I was right up the street, up the road uh, at Fort Meade. So... Um, Took a Pentagon tour at the air staff, and we were um, operational plans. So, uh, and I think I worked, um, what area I worked? Well, it was Mideast, I was, but I forget my sub area. But um, 
they that group of folks had uh, people from all different backgrounds. We were all military, political, military uh, affairs people. That was our new uh, assignment number. But they came from different places. We had logistics people. I was a communications person. That was my background initially. I spent 15 years doing um, com electronic type stuff. So I was that. We had pilots. We had navigators. Um, all kinds of folks like that in there stuff. It was a great group of people to work with. Uh, I learned a lot about kind of the whole uh, way the Air Force works. And of course, they were almost all, not all, but um, most of them, I think, were cynics because they had actually uh, been around. I mean, these guys were in their 30s and, and 40s, and they'd, they'd uh, uh, spend a lot of time learning about the military. Of course, they were proud to be there, but but a lot of them were cynical, and I, I gained a little bit of that. Then that tour lasted until... Uh, I was there for two and a half years and I took a uh, second tour, even though the first one wasn't really three full years. Um, I curtailed that a little bit and moved over into another part of the Pentagon. And this was the Office of Secretary of Defense in uh, plans for uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So that was where I worked next. And with that group, I worked with a lot more civilians. So it was, it was actually, and you guys probably maybe appreciate this, but you know, it's fun working with military people. Um, especially when they've been all over and done lots of things and, and they're kind of similar to you in age and attitude there's that when i moved to the osd uh, of course I, had, uh, I worked with more of the career civilians and also of course appointees for the first time we got to understand what a political appointee was or kind of a, i think they call them class c although the trump's changed he's got a new class of political appointees that I, he just changed it recently anyway these uh, political appointees had had uh, come in with the Bush administration. Uh, and, you know, I'm not really too, I'm not working Mideast policy initially. I started out in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's when I wrote those, a couple of, well, actually one of the books I wrote, I did work Africa in, air, in the air plan side on the air staff. I wrote uh, one of those books. And I finished up the second one when I was in OSD working on the air staff. So I had, I mean, working in Sub-Saharan Africa. Anyway, it's kind of confusing, but those books related to Africa because that was my area. Those We finished those up, and I'm working and having a good time, not worrying about anything, and I got drafted, which was not my choice, I, but in the military course, whatever. I got told, you're, we need somebody to fill uh, some positions uh, over in uh, uh, Mideast, uh, well, Near East South Asia, NISA, which was the obviously Iraq, Saudi Arabia, North Africa is included. So um, I took the North Africa desk and I did not want to go. And part of that was, this was 2000, uh, early 2000. And um, of course, Bush had come in. I was uh, not immune to what was going on in the news. And I was learning about neoconservatism. And of course, George W. Bush Jr., well, 43, you know, son of, I was never a fan of his father. Um, which kind of connects back to, you know, this whole uh, span of time. But here we have uh, W coming in and Cheney. And of course, not a fan of Cheney, I have to say. You know, I was, he, he wouldn't have been a guy I would have uh, supported, even though I was Republican. But I had read things and heard things. And we knew one of the reasons I didn't want to go over there to NISA is because of uh, Bill Ludy, his terrible reputation that he had uh, as a, politicized now he's retired navy captain oh and oh by the way bill ludy 17 years later he's working at the national security on a contract with uh, the national security staff of uh trump 
So we can only hope if, if Biden uh, does actually go into office that, that Ludi will be unemployed again, but I doubt it because Biden's bringing the neocons back. So whatever. But Ludi, like a like a wart, you can't get rid of. I mean, he's there and his reputation is terrible. In fact, one of the reasons that they were looking for people from the other offices was that he couldn't keep people. He wasn't able to. People were quitting. Why were they quitting? Well, I found that out after I got there. But we just, you know, it was like a general bad situation. But they needed a warm body of, of a lieutenant, <laughs> lieutenant colonel type warm body to work the North Africa desk. So um, so I moved over there uh, and I, I did so. Uh, well, you can't say under duress because you're in the military, you, you just do it. But I mean, it was, I didn't, I was not a volunteer. And so as I'm looking around, I'm not like, oh, how great it is to be here. I'm looking around trying to be uh, somewhat positive, but also basically my my cynicism and my objectivism is, is getting, uh, is, is in control. So I'm looking at this stuff like, um, you know, what, what's happening here. And I, made a number of friends uh, there who, uh, military types, uh, uh, I think there was an army uh, colonel and a, a Navy captain there both who were working on getting out of there. They were working on curtailing their own OSD staff tour, which they needed. It was a ticket punching kind of thing for people that, that wanted to go on to commands or whatever. And um, why were they leaving? Well, they told me why they were leaving. And they said, well, these neocons. I said, what, what are these neocons? Actually, I've heard of this. What is this thing? This, this, what is this philosophy? And they explained it to me. And, um, and they, uh, beyond that, talked about uh, procedural aberrations and uh, politicization of things that, things that offended them. And also, like anybody, you know, these, these guys wanted to have their voice heard and they were being told, um, that's not what we want to hear. So you need to shut up. I mean, and that probably was how they were told that. Um, and, and so they're frustrated. They're leaving. They're finding uh, better jobs because most of these guys wanted to stay in, you know, the full 26 or 30 years, whatever they could do. Um, so so that's, this is how I get there. And I'm working North Africa. I'm sitting, we're hot bunking. There's a lot of, of, uh, of uh, appointees coming in, people with who had never been in the military, um, very ideological types um, that were being brought in. And in the summer, after I got, I moved over there, I guess it was the spring of 2000. During that summer timeframe, they were beefing up the Near East South Asia shop. And in August, we had a meeting, I've written about this, uh, whatever, but in August of, of that year, uh, we had, um, I say 2000, I meant 2000 and. 2002. So it was after 9-11. So in August, we get, we have a big staff meeting because people are getting grumpy because they're like crammed together in this cubicle. And of course the Pentagon is like that, you know, it keeps growing and growing and uh, they've, they've made offices out of hallways. They've done everything they can to cram people in there. Um, but it's, it's a little bit tight and people don't know each other. So there's frustration. And so we have a meeting in August and Bill Ludi says, it's a stat, it's a NISA meeting. And he says, Hey guys, um, I, I know it's been crowded. Uh, we've got some new space and all, a lot of these new people will be part of uh, office of special plans. And um, they're going to move in the next several weeks over there. Uh, but I don't want you to say anything about the name of this office of special plans. It's kind of like, and this is where it gets hokey because you can sit there and tell people, you know, you're telling 25 or 30 people in the Pentagon uh, office of special plans. It's very nondescript, but then he says, Oh, but it's a secret. That's kind of like, um, cartoonish really but uh 
anyway, that's that's what he said. So we don't want to say anything about it. Um, but really, it's it's going to work the Iran stuff, Iraq and Iran. Of course, Iran wasn't even, you know, I mean, they'd switched from the Bush had shifted uh, forces into into Iraq um, or, or moved emphasis into Iraq from Afghanistan. And Iran wasn't even on the I mean, obviously, the neocons don't like Iran, but I mean, that wasn't on our operational uh, plan, but that's what this Office of Special Plans was going to do. So anyway, they they talk about that, and and eventually the guys did move out into the Office of Special Plans, but we still, as NISA, our staff officers in NISA, interfaced with them all the time. And one of the things we were told in this meeting is, he said, uh, once they're set up, Office of Special Plans will uh, produce talking points uh, on terrorism, on WMD, on Iraq, on Iran, uh, and these talking points will evolve. And whenever you send a paper up, because of course, where I where we work in, at, we're staff officers, what do we do? We write papers on our area of expertise, we research it, we use the, the uh, intelligence that, that's available to us, and we put together position papers. I mean, that's what you do, you push papers up the chain, and it keeps going up the chain to inform whoever needs to be informed. And uh, he said, when you write these papers, uh, from now on, you won't do any of the intelligence uh, summaries or recommendations, you, we will give you what goes in each of these papers. Um, and so when you have a paper that you're doing, you're doing a staff position paper, whatever, whatever it is, uh, you uh, contact the Office of Special Plans and they're gonna give you what goes in there and you copy and paste, you do not change, you do not uh, you know, modify, you do not delete, you do not cherry pick any of that. You take the whole thing in your paper. And it was several pages. I mean, you'd have a two page paper with three pages of stuff from OSD that would be shoved up the, up the chain. That's what, that was one of the direct, or so that, so you think about that, you know, like, well, you know, if I'm making McDonald's hamburgers, that might work, you know, having a standardized way of doing business and compartmentalizing it. But, um, what we were doing, it was it was kind of uh, what was very propagandistic. And of course, people said that, not just me, uh, all of us working. We would look at these things we were given um, and then we'd see how they changed. And over the fall, over the autumn of that year, um, they would change. Some of the talking points that they had were the same things. Oh, and these talking points were um, secret at the secret level. Uh, at least we didn't do uh, TSP. I didn't do TS papers, but they were definitely at secret level. But there were a couple of strange things about them. One is the whole the pages would be classified, but not the paragraphs or the sentences, which of course violates uh, the rules on how you do classification. Every every statement, every paragraph has to be separately classified, and um, they they refused to do that. In fact, one of the guys, one of the the army colonels, was so in uh, in. I, I I'm not even sure if that wasn't the main reason he got out of there. He was so upset about them not following the. Uh, rules and he tried to he went up the chain to say you can't do it like this and they just told him to shut up we're doing it like this because these are civilians these are political appointees they, they don't have it, it wasn't just that they didn't have the training they had no respect for uh the process either because and what we didn't know at the time but it's because they they had a job to do and their job was very different than what um all of us thought our job was anyway uh we got to see how these things evolved and for a long time we had a talking point that we were required to use in, in this list of talking points that talked about the meeting in Prague between uh, one of uh, supposedly between one of Saddam Hussein's intel guys and uh, one of the bombers, Mohammed Adda, I think. And then after the newspaper debunked it, the FBI actually had to be interviewed in the Times um, because Times was pretty much reporting all these 
talking points. That was the other thing that was very strange. You know, the paragraphs weren't marked and then we'd see the stuff in the newspaper. So like, what is that? That is so strange. But anyway, they stopped, they, they pulled it from the talking point that they pulled that talking point after it was debunked in the newspaper by the FBI. So we're sitting here almost like watching Peyton place, a Peyton place of government, um, you know, with these little games that they're playing and, and where was, where, where was the truth in all this? Well, um, not, not very, you know, hard to find the truth really. Uh, obviously it, it dawned on most of us. And I was probably, uh, I think there were some reporters and some people, critics, outside of the Pentagon and some within the Pentagon who they understood sooner than I did what was really happening, but I came to understand it. And at the time that I did, um, that was also in about the autumn of 2002. And I began writing uh, these little short essays for my friends and they were very um, kind of like black humor, dark humor kind of things. Uh, and I'd said to my friends in different places the Pentagon, and they would all laugh and they go, yeah, yeah, it's funny. It, but it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny, funny. It was like um, terrible funny. And uh, so I, I uh, felt like I needed to get a larger audience. And so I uh, uh, found uh, David Hackworth's site and I sent him four or five of these things that I had written. And they were based on things that would happen to me during the day or meetings or things that were happening. I'd be like a kind of a, sarcastic take on the neoconservative action of the day and um and and hackworth i did not know hackworth and you know you guys you know, you know hackworth pretty well i mean he's passed but um you know he was very adamant about you not want women in combat which uh you know and he had, he had his own opinions about a lot of things very tough guy very principled guy and i had no connection with him i had no idea but he immediately he immediately accepted and gave me a platform on his uh, Soldiers for the Truth website immediately. And why would he do that? He didn't know me from Adam. I had, what credibility could I possibly have other than, you know, I have a dot mil email address I used. I mean, he, he knew I was in the Pentagon, but, but it, it occurred to me months later that his contacts and all the people that I knew too, who wouldn't do anything, but would talk every once in a while, make a complaint that he knew he had he had tons of other evidence that corroborated the kinds of uh things i was seeing also so uh he did that and that was uh, that was a, a great thing for me it gave me kind of a an outlet for my uh I, I have to say anger um and you know later after this object came out i'm active duty at that time and of course i i would have been in big, big trouble i didn't release classified information um not any more than uh uh the times already had access to for certainly because I would, you know, I, I wasn't doing that, but, but yeah, disrespecting uh, uh, the Pentagon leadership and the neocons uh, is not good. They don't, they don't look kindly on that. I don't know if it's changed much since then, but um, uh, yeah, I would have gotten big trouble. So I, I was published anonymously by Hackworth and that gave me kind of an outlet uh, to kind of record uh what I was seeing and what I was thinking and, and my assessment of it. So um, I don't know if that's whistleblowing because it wasn't like classified information. It wasn't stealing documents or anything like that, but it, uh, it, it enabled me to get up to my 20, it enabled me to uh, uh, stay in there and at least say, what's my purpose here? Well, maybe my purpose might be to witness uh, what we're doing. Um, and so that, that went on for about uh, eight or nine months and then I retired. Anyway, that's another long divergent thing. I, I don't even remember what the original uh, 
question was, but that's kind of um, how I got there. Oh no, you did. It was it was great. Um, in terms of military intervention, how did you perceive what might have seemed to be a righteous choice to intervene militarily militarily prior to 9/11, regardless of the place or purpose? And how do you see that type of intervention today? Well, actually, I uh, during um, the the NATO bombing and the, the actions in Yugoslavia, that was really where because um, I did not agree with that, and I didn't. Um, I was in uh, Italy. I was serving in uh, Aviano at that time, and I even had a, a three months uh, a three months tour. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry, I got the dog and the grandkid here. Um, but I had a three-month tour in uh, uh, Verona, which is a, one of the NATO bases, and worked with them. And so I got to see how NATO was operating. And, of course, Aviano was flying raids or whatever, uh, bombing uh, different parts of uh, Serbia and, and former Yugoslavia uh, from, from the base that I was stationed at. And uh, it, it was, and I worked for 16th Air Force headquarters at the time, so we're kind of getting an overview of all this. And um, it didn't make a, it didn't make a huge amount of, of sense, to me. And um, also, of course, Italy was suffering. We we got the, not we in Aviano, but Italy uh, did receive, um, uh, you know, some refugee flow and and some concerns of having uh, this this NATO prosecuted, U.S. prosecuted action right next door. Um, it was, it was just kind of, um, you know, it, it's kind of disappointing. Like, is this what military, is this what we do? You know, <laughs> is this, is this what it's about? Cause it was very different than what I had come into in the, in the early eighties, you know? Um, so I was already predisposed to look askance at um, interventions, military interventions uh, in general, because of uh, the, you know, what they're about, what they're fundamentally about, what the people are told they are about, um, the impacts that they have, you know, a lot of this just didn't go into it. It's not like I'm a bleeding heart, but just didn't make a lot of sense. Seemed like a big waste of resources. And certainly viewing from what I saw in Verona in my time there at the NATO base, um, NATO was, oh my God. I mean, it it made me very glad I was in an American uh, service branch rather than uh, one of some, and I don't mean to criticize, but I am going to, but I have to criticize because it was shocking the, um, how things got done and the kinds of things that didn't get done. You know, uh, it, it was, uh, I was glad to be an American, but I wasn't glad to be involved in that, in that activity. Um, it didn't, didn't make a lot of sense. So I was predisposed to be, uh, cautious. And again, you know, when Clinton did Yugoslavia, or when NATO did it, you know, this was supposed to be the world's first humanitarian war. What, what kind of uh, newspeak is that? You know, what kind of Orwellian concept is that? A humanitarian war? It, it, it's, um, it just, you know, and again, I, I'm sure that's what we're doing in Somalia and South Sudan. And I, I don't know, maybe this is a thing that I, I missed the, uh, the training class when they explained how that worked, but I, I don't, it didn't make a lot of sense. So um, with the Iraq thing, first off, Afghanistan, I kind of got, I didn't really get because it wasn't the Taliban that did 9-11, but, you know, they were they were hosting this guy. And so whatever. I'm saying, oh, OK, fine. You know, I can the Afghanistan thing you can do. But the Iraq thing, which they really wanted to do um, and had been working on since uh, shortly after uh, 9-11. I mean, they're working on preparing uh, the military to go into Iraq. And I'll tell you how I 
historically we can read the newspaper and figure it out. But I ran into a guy, this was in, uh, this was about January, January, 2003. And it's a guy, a friend of mine, he was a Navy. I think he was in the Navy or Army. Yeah, no, Navy. And I had not seen him in eight months. I hadn't seen him since May. And we're in the Pentagon, okay? There's 30, 26,000 people there. You're not going to see everybody every day. But I used to work with this guy, and I I used to see him around, and I hadn't seen him. So I said, hey, dude, I thought you, I didn't, you know, hadn't seen you. What's what have you been up to? And he goes, I've been working 14 hours a day since May of last year, getting ready to invade Iraq. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah. He goes, there's a lot of logistics involved in invading Iraq. And I'm saying, what? I said, I thought that they only just decided to do that just a little while ago. And um, he goes, oh, no, no. We've been working on this for 14 or 15 months. And I've been working on it myself uh, since May, uh, putting in, you know, I mean, he was, and he was a dedicated guy. So he was, he was working hard to make sure it happened. Um, so this is, uh, and this was long before the public uh, propaganda campaign really got going in the states to kind of uh, get the American people behind this thing. So basically, it was going to happen. So we do these interventions because the Pentagon or politicians or ideological leaders uh, want to do them. It has nothing to do with defense, offense, anything else. It's we want to do this. So we have this tool and we're going to do it. So I, I was predisposed to not be a fan of it. I'd seen it before. Uh, and of course, in 2001, two, and the beginning of three, when I was up there, uh, same things happening again. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to sound so cynical, but I was, you know, they made me a cynic. Uh, if you kept your eyes open, anybody up there would be a cynic, because uh, it wasn't just me that saw this. It was tons of people. And I think one of your questions you, we can make it to later is why more people don't speak out and again, I didn't speak out with my name because I wanted to retire and I didn't want to get, I didn't want to go to Leavenworth. I have four children, a husband, I'm the, I was the sole breadwinner. You know, I, I had my own reasons for not wanting to go to jail. I'm sure most people do. Um, but, it, it, you know, why don't people act? Well, most of them, the guys that I knew that they did act, they got out of Near East South Asia. These colonels and captains uh, found, they called their assignments guys and they said, get me out of here. And the assignments guys got them out of there. And that's what they did. Um, they saved themselves uh, and they had to because people have mortgages. They have uh, kids in college. You know, you think somebody's uh, 40, late 30s, early 40s. They're thinking about if they have kids, they're thinking about paying for college. You know, they're uh, they don't really maybe they don't want to move out of the area because their kids are in high school. There's all kinds of reasons they have a mortgage. There's all kinds of reasons people don't want to sacrifice their career. Um, oh, and most of them. And these two guys are not uh, these two. My two friends that got out of the job got new assignments. Both of them, I believe, went to work for defense organizations after they retired. They want that second career, which you're not going to get if you're a whistleblower. So. You know, it's just people look out for themselves and they don't uh, take the action. But many, many people saw what I saw and many, many people were um, as upset as I was. It's just they didn't they didn't act as I did because of, I think, in many cases, them, this, 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 they have to take care of their families or themselves or and people, you know, people don't like criticized. I mean, I remember uh, when I did go public after I retired and I wrote started writing about this stuff. Um, Rumsfeld's like, oh, she's a disgruntled employee. Well, thank God I was a woman because if I hadn't have been, he would have said worse stuff uh, about me. You know, he couldn't call me a son of a bitch. But, um, but you know, 
you getting you get you get criticized and you know people think that women don't want to be criticized frankly i don't think anybody does and a lot of guys are more sensitive to it than women are so um and i think you see a lot of women in whistleblower roles because they don't really care um they 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 don't care if men criticize (laughs) not all women obviously but some and uh but anyway, yeah, a lot of people f- saw what I saw, were as cynical as I was, um, understood what was happening, this uh, propagandized uh, make war, uh, this harnessing of our uh, military might and power, which is, which is formidable, um, for basically nothing more than a private agenda. Um, pretty bad stuff. A lot of people saw it, um, but not everybody uh, could act. And if they did act, most of the time they acted t- to just remove them themselves from from this position and let it go not talk about it put it behind them move on well karen it's interesting every time that that we interview you know a, a whistleblower a dissenter um well, first of all, it's funny that you said that there's a lot of women because there are, right? It, it, it's a it's a real thing. I mean, even if you look at you know EMN, we've got you know you and Colleen, and I started to think, wow, okay, that's there's something to that that I hadn't really thought about. But every time we interview, you know, someone fitting that mold, um, I find that the personality type that does it, despite the fact that much of the criticism leveled. Uh, always seems to be in the vein of, you know, either they're like disgruntled and they're just like perennially angry people or that they like want their 15 minutes of fame and they're just trying to make a name for themselves. That's the critique. And then yet whenever we talk to these people, whenever I've gotten to know them, uh, all of you tend to, if anything, tack in the direction of, oh, I didn't do enough. I wasn't quite a whistleblower. You know, there's a humility to it that I always notice, um, which is striking in a way. I, I have felt, and I've uh, said this before and um, way too late, of course, but um, I wished that in my last eight months in the Pentagon, I had uh, collected uh, documents, classified documents, and either made copies or somehow secured them. I wish that I had done that. Um, it would have, I think it would have helped. Um, it would help people be convinced because it took years uh you know, the movie Why We Fight, I think that was 2004. Really, it wasn't until 2008 and nine where people began to look back and say, hey, this was kind of, this was a neocon war. What, what did we do here? That we were lied to. This didn't happen. We were told it happened and it didn't. Um, we were we were taken to war uh, under false uh, premises, really. So, you know, that's... Uh, I, but I didn't. I didn't do those things. And I think also a lot of people who serve the government uh, and probably people who serve businesses, too. I mean, people have ethics and they they, uh, you know, thou shalt not steal it. it you, think, you think of it, you know, and you say, well, you know, I'll do what I can within. But I still have to do the right thing. And, and actually doing the right thing is what drives almost. I Well, you know, better than I do, because you've talked to more uh, people. But I think they feel like they have to do the right thing. And then obviously to really do it right we would have needed to do like uh, how uh, our NSA guy in, you know, uh, what's his face? The one that we need to get a pardon for in Russia. Oh, Snowden. Yeah. What Snowden did and actually provide the evidence so that other people can objectively view and look at it. And so you can ask questions to provide that transparency. Um, just like Assange. I mean, Assange, 
way of uh, holding governments and institutions accountable, forcing them, forcing transparency. Um, this is a great thing. We need to do that. And um, so after the fact, you always wish there was more, um, more transparency because really, uh, and we do this in all of our wars, and I'm sure all countries do this if they have wars. We count our dead. We don't count the other side's dead. Uh, we count the damage that we've done to other countries. I mean, um, we didn't in Vietnam. Um, I'm sure we didn't care in Korea. Uh, we uh, don't care in all of our interventions. And in Iraq, where we, they still don't have, and this is strange to me, but, um, you know, they, they don't have uh, the, the potable water systems and the healthcare and anything else that the economy, the level of the economy, they don't have any of that to the level that they had under Saddam Hussein. So they still have not, they still haven't even gotten to where they were in 2003. Um. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. That's that's our legacy, but we don't count that. And of course, the, the refugees and the displaced people and the deaths and the uh, shortened lifespans of other people that aren't quite dead, but they're not going to live a full life because of, uh, you know, the war. We don't count any of that. And uh, it's kind of it's kind of not right. Uh, Americans, you know, we think we, we are very fortunate to live in this country 
and we have this uh, sense of that we're that we're good people that we do good things that we care for the world but really <laughs> it's it's not it's not clear that we do um certainly the letting the military uh run rampant um being willing to believe lies if it makes us feel certainly a little bit patriotic uh or if we're fearful you know and it's you know when people are scared uh, authority figures gain power and those authority figures we think well they're they must be good because they're an authority no <laughs> not at all <laughs> they're probably criminals and we should be very um cautious about uh believing a lot of what our governments tell us especially in times of um crisis in times of fear or whatever um we, we have you know we have a track record even if you don't believe it philosophically and you said well this is natural for these institutions you could look historically and say well in the past, when we've had crises, were, did our government lie to us? And it's like, well, yeah, every single time. So um, you can learn from history a little bit. And we, we need to be far more critical and uh, distrustful of, uh, of our government. Now, I, I'm not even talking about who's in charge. I don't care who's in charge. Um, it didn't matter in Iraq. I think Obama prosecuted Iraq pretty darn enthusiastically. Um, after Bush had done it, in fact, uh, in Afghanistan, what's that, 17 years? And I think Trump <laughs> Trump's trying to bring the troops home from Afghanistan, but he's I, he won't be able to to do that. I don't know if you looked at the NDAA that they're trying to sign, and he threatened he was going to veto it. You know, you know the the most yep. recent, mm -hmm. and he threatened to veto it because he's unhappy with uh, Facebook and Google and whatnot. And he wants Section two thirty of the these Com De Communications Decency Act, you know, that allows them not to be accountable for the things that are posted, whatever, whatever. So he says, well, you need to do something about them. They talk bad about me. So he says, so I'm going to veto it because you didn't do anything about Section 230. In fact, the NDAA stops the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, Iraq, and I maybe even Syria. Stops it. It's st this is Trump's order, but but he's not going to he's not going to veto it for that reason. So, um, and maybe he doesn't know that, but he he should know. If I know it. He should know it. So, um, I mean, it's out there. You can read it. Um, I think I, Danny, I, the, I know antiwar.com published it. So, yeah, you know, it's out there. It's factual. And um, so, so there is no intention of the institution to correct its mistakes. Um, there's no intention of the institution to uh, look at reality. Uh, the institution of that they're involved in our foreign policy, these institutions do not share the average American's um, perspective. They don't share the average American's sense of um, decency or common sense. They don't share it. They, they live in a different world. So, yeah. Uh, and that's what I just said there. Maybe I'm, maybe there's some tension in my voice, some anger. Well, that's how I felt <laughs> 20 years ago. Same way, same exact way, same stuff that keeps happening. And we, the people, buy into it over and over again. And, and seem to never realize that all of the obscenity you're describing is, in fact, done in our name. Whether or not we have a draft, whether or not there's a war tax directly, it doesn't change the fact that those Yemeni children, those Iraqi casualties and refugees, that's, that's in our name. I mean, that's, that, that, was, that was bin Laden's argument you know, flawed, but not completely irrational as to why one could attack the United States citizenry. Now, I don't agree with that, you know, the way he derived that, but at the same time, in a well, it's, it's ostensible a democracy, right? And, you know, even in the, the 
stuff that um, Israel does to the Palestinians, oftentimes with American munitions, which made the USA on the, you know, on the, on the, so, so we put our stamp even on those things, which most Americans are not supportive of um, and, and feel bad about, but we, we get, we're going to get blamed for it. Um, and we are responsible for it because we elect people and we say, you just go do your thing and we trust them when we should never trust them. Uh, you know, and, and I'll tell you, this is kind of a present day thing. But you know, you take Trump, right? Four years of Trump, and Trump's been great to watch. I mean, it's just tons of fun, right? Uh, unless, you're in, you know, Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing, and people are very unhappy. Some people are very fearful and unhappy. You know, Trump's destroying the planet or whatever he's doing. But one thing Trump has helped do, and Biden also, which is such a beautiful thing. You know, the the senile Biden. You know, the guy who can't put two sentences together that make any sense. This is wonderful because first we have Trump, who apparently wakes up in the morning, starts tweeting whatever's you know, comes to mind. Um, and and you, people don't respect that. They don't um, think that he's a wise man. You know, uh, Biden, they might like Biden as a person, but, you know, the guy's senile and he can't he has a, something is going on in his brain that prevents him from communicating effectively. And so we accept that. We go, well, you can't communicate very well. And, you know, we hope we'll be OK. Maybe the people around him will make sure. But we have given every opportunity to see incompetence in action at the highest level. And yet we still we, we think, oh, well, but, yeah, they can take us to war. My God. Of course they can't take us to work. I wouldn't have these people drive my kid to school. You, you, you know, it's, you, it's a good thing. We're, we're learning. I think as a society, we are learning. I think Americans are becoming aware that we are badly led. And if that's the case, if we accept that, and, and it doesn't matter who we elect, we're badly led. So then we say, well, who are the, um, what's, what keeps things going? Who's, who are these members of these institutions? And, um, you know, it's just like this guy they're nominating uh, for uh Secretary of Defense, Biden has a, named a guy, you know the guy I'm talking about, Army General. For, he'll be the first black. Uh, oh, Austin, right. Lloyd Austin. Right. So I'm reading an article about him because I, you know, I didn't know, I don't know who's in the Army and I read an article about him and they said, well, one issue that will come, not the issue of the waiver on he just served and now he's going to, you know, there's a waiver. They gave Mattis that waiver and they said, well, they'll probably give it to this guy. But they said at the very end, they said, well, well, he's part of a big uh, capital investing group that invests in defense stuff along with another uh, well-known uh, retread. So, you know, their interests are not our interests. Their interests are how do I, you know, how do I fill out my portfolio um, from my position? And that's not something Americans trust either. So we have incompetent leadership and then we have corrupt institutions. So that ought to be helping us to be as a people um, a little more cynical about every little war they want to go to. Um, not sure that's happening, although uh, Trump has, uh, I think one of his his things that he said is that he did. And I think it's it, it may stand the test of time is he didn't engage in any new um, military interventions in four years now. If you hate Trump, you can say, well, that's because he couldn't work with the institutions. Well, I don't care why it was. You know, I, I will take I will take that. Um, you know, but we'll see what Biden does. Um, Biden's already talking about we got to get back to interventions, you know, so we can prove how, what a great, uh, powerful country we are. But again, you know, I, I'm I'm 60. I'm 60 years old. I, I feel like I'm like 20, you know, and I'm, the world's I look at the world like, wow, what's going to happen next? Right. But um 
the U.S. position in the in the on the planet is not what it was when I was twenty. Um, it's not what it was when I was born. Uh, it's very different. Um, we are, you know, if we're out trying to prove how great we are, we need to maybe find a new a new way to do that because it's not going to be done militarily. Uh, we haven't. Uh, it's, it's just not. Um, we have spending on defense projects, which put money into every congressional district, uh, employ a great many people, and fund a great many lobbyists. So we do that. But, you know, the, the future is not going to be, uh, we're going to get back to the way it was in the, you know, after World War II, when we were the last man standing. It's, it's not going to be like that. It's not like that now. It hasn't been like that for some time. And a lot of these politicians who, uh, I guess, they're appealing for votes on the you know, American greatness, military greatness in particular, um, that's another one of those lies that we're, that the people are being told. Um, that is unachievable at this point. It's, it's something that we are uh, uh, an empire, not a republic anymore. I think the past number of elections have shown that you cannot get 300,000 people and call a vote and call it a democracy. That's not, that's not a republic. Uh, we're not a republic and we are an empire, but we're an empire in our final stages. We're in an empire where um, uh, the forces are really pulling us apart. And, and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's going to be a painful thing, but it's not a bad thing. Anyway, that's just, that's just my, my opinion. But I think Biden will be a part of this because he's, he's very much like Trump in the sense that no one trusts him to be a wise decision maker. Now, the Democrats are saying they do, but I don't think really they do either. We're not sure what he will wake up and say. Well, absolutely. And it's interesting how terms like empire are getting more of a hearing now than they did 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when it's related to the United States. And, you know, I mean, a lot of empires seem they, they go to die in Afghanistan, of course, but they, they often, you know, behave badly in Africa as well. And um, it's been interesting over my you know, kind of, well, most of my military career, but especially after kind of the way I've connected with, with, with some of you, um, voices who were dissenting even before we met, right. This is really the first time we've spoken at any length, you know, besides over email and stuff like that and, and haven't met. And that's the case with many people, but this week I had released a piece at Tom dispatch with Bill, a story who's been writing there for a long time, also retired air force who started speaking out after he retired. And we wrote these kind of uh, fictional letters back and forth, like pen pals about, you know, imagine if we had started speaking when I was still in uniform, because he retired in 05, which was the year I commissioned out of the academy. And uh, it reminded me of some of those years. And, and you mentioned that that sense of anger that really hasn't fully left you. And uh, I know it's there for me. And in those years that we were going back and doing this pen paling, I was pretty angry. And you know, I first ran into to you and Larry Wilkerson in the Why We Fight documentary, which, as I mentioned, I I watched it and then I watched it again and then I watched it again all within like a two week span in early 2008. So I had just come back from the 15 months, which really spanned the first year of the Iraq surge. We had been extended uh, and then actually 
actually had begun just before the surge. I had gotten there in October and, and I had come back and really was not in an okay place. And I, and I know that other folks probably had it worse and I don't mean to overplay that, but I was a, in a rough spot. I was very angry. I couldn't understand what I had just been asked to do. And, you know, uh, I felt really helpless about what I could do about it. And, and then I, I watched this documentary and I, and I don't even really remember how it came into my world, but I watched it and I watched uh, you speaking out uh, in particular because you had only recently been in uniform and then uh, listening to Larry Wilkerson speak. And I just thought to myself, oh, okay, I'm not completely alone. In fact, there are these people I was, you know, as first lieutenant, uh, there are these people who are senior to me by a whole lot who came to a lot of the same conclusions and maybe there are others, you know, it was like that sense of you're an alien and then you find out, Oh, there's others in the, in the species. But, and then over the years I had, uh, I'd followed some of your work. So I was familiar with you when, when Colleen said, Hey, you know, you should think about Karen. And this past year I go in and out of these scholarly diversions that are pretty intense for a layperson. And I'd been writing a lot about kind of sub-Saharan Africa and had been uh, studying Angola in particular and the, the Portuguese empire and looking for parallels there and just the way they were sort of the last empire and then what had happened after with the Cubans and Reagan. And sure enough, that was when I think I first realized because I had seen you cited uh, in your academic work, I had seen you cited in some other stuff I was reading and, and then your name jumped out and it's not a common name. And I was like, oh my goodness, she studied Africa. And so <laughs> that was just one of those weird moments in life, right? So it connects, you know, 15 years apart or, or 13 years apart. And I could, I had to ask you, and I think I mentioned this in my initial email to you, you know, why was it in the early eighties, you know, or, or, and then after, that you got interested in the topic of, of Africa, particularly Southern Africa, right, which isn't usually at the forefront of American policymaking, particularly in the more modern era where it's all about the Middle East and North Africa. So how did you get interested? And did, did and if so, how it kind of inform any of your views uh, about American policymaking moving forward? And then, of course, today, right, with AFRICOM and all the madness on the continent. Yeah, um, well, I, I wasn't, a, well, I am a zoology major. That was my undergraduate degree, zoology. So um, in a sense, as a young person, always, uh, you know, Africa is a huge, uh, just an, a, a frontier. So there's that kind of thing, like Alaska is a frontier. You know, it's these places that are big and uh, that are unexplored in many ways, or at least from, you know, a Western perspective, unexplored. So there's that. Um, but the military, when I, I mean, I was made, uh, my job was the first job I had in the air staff, I was looking over the sub-Saharan Africa portion of, of uh, air operations. And there wasn't much then at that time in the late 90s really going on uh, other than uh, the ACRI, which I wrote a book that they published down at the air, what was it? Uh, one of the air places published, Air Force Institute or something. But um, that, uh that study, and actually, I hate to, I'll tell you this, <laughs> wasn't so much I was interested in Africa, but when you work for government jobs and you're curious about stuff, a lot of times your jobs aren't that interesting. And I actually, I was taking school type, I was taking classes at night because I, my PhD, I had all my classes done by the time I retired and just, I was at all but dissertation when I retired. So I'm look, I'm looking at things from an academic perspective, like you do uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, so I was working on, I needed to learn my job but I'm looking at it 
from a historical and academic perspective as much as I am just what do I need to do to do my job. And that's what led to those those two books, looking at kind of uh, air operations in in Africa. And of course, critiquing the African Crisis Response Initiative, which was the only thing we were really uh, doing in Africa in the 90s. Now, big picture wise, yeah. I mean, we know that we were in bed with South Africa, you know, the nuclear situation, all kinds of stuff. You know, we were um, resource dipping uh, U.S. Co- U.S. companies and, and the U.S. was interested in Africa for that. But the African Crisis Response Initiative uh, training program was kind of a small little thing. And uh, I want to see if it was working. And a lot of these things, because I traveled there and seen some of this stuff. And I was like, well, is this really effective? I don't know. So we did some, I wanted to put together the numbers and see if it was effective. And um you know, very only partially effective at anything. Um, but that's, I kind of learned, and the more I learned, the more interested I got. So the Air Force kind of led me to being interested in Africa. But the other thing was, um, you know, we didn't, at the time that I was at the Air Staff, we did not have any AFRICOM, and it wasn't really being discussed. By the time I moved up to the uh, Office of, uh, uh, well, the, the Sub-Saharan African Affairs uh, stuff in OSD, they were trying to get AFRICOM set up, and they did. Uh, very At the very end of my term there, they were able to uh, put an office there in uh, Stuttgart, which is where UCOM, the European Command, is located, and they put a, they created a on-paper office, and they staffed it with some people and said, you're AFRICOM, um, and they were uh, dealing with various countries in uh, on the continent there to see where we would put a physical headquarters. And of course, <laughs> this is the other cynical part. Back in the eighties, one of the jobs I had up in Hanscom was acquisition and we weren't buying things for foreign countries or selling things to foreign countries, but we were wasting a lot of money. And um, so I became aware of how some of that works. And then when I worked with uh, in, in the uh, air staff and at OSD, you know, you see how much money is thrown around and the kind of deals that are, are done, uh, the trading that's done, the arms sales type issues. In fact, a lot of what we wrote about in NISA had to do with who are we selling arms to? Who are we funding the sales of arms to? You know, how do we get friends to buy our stuff and not buy other people's stuff? You know, it's similar to the way the Cold War uh, operated. You know, we want to sell our stuff so they wouldn't buy Soviet stuff. And um, But that didn't change at all after the Cold War ended. It was just more, how do we sell our, our arms and how do we create these so-called allies? But we do it with... Um, you know, money. We we give them money. I mean, and I I have never been to Afghanistan, but um, or Iraq. But you know, you hear there's even movies now that talk about you know bales and and pallets full of uh, uh, dollars straight out of the treasury. We buy in, and nobody ever sees them again. But that's how we do our foreign policy. We buy it, and uh, so some of that uh, I saw in Africa to a great extent, and also the um, the the some of I, I read uh, I studied Africa economic type issues and agricultural type issues and of course their their um, history of colonialism you know you look at how these things work and uh, it's very interesting because they've got a very most of the countries not all but and it does depend on who colonized them and what what uh, European models were forced on top of what they already had and how that melded together but most of these countries have a wealthy class i guess they start to look like the u.s they have a very wealthy class that controls policy and then they have a bunch of other people that is working their butts off trying to make ends meet and um not being very wealthy and so you you see that and you think about well what's 
where do we play and you know how does the u.s military impact that well we don't if anything we, we're making the rich richer that's how we that's how we that's our tool you know we go to the guy in control and we buy him uh at least it appeared to me that that's how we we did it that was the fundamental of how we uh influenced other countries and then of course i also said well how do other countries do it because the soviet union had collapsed by then and russia was not as interested in uh well they were interested in selling things but certainly not as a you know as an empire because their empire had collapsed but what was the other big players in on the african continent uh, particularly sub-saharan africa was china and how did they do it well they didn't sell arms they built factories <laughs> to kind of help people they, they did capitalism which is kind of interesting because the commies are doing capitalism which is actually uh you know creating uh, a higher quality of living for more people in a lot of these countries and yes i'm i'm sure they didn't work in the best environments but at least they you know they were moving up in the world a little bit or they felt that they were and that's what china brought you know china brought trade production and that kind of thing uh, they didn't sell uh too many arms while we were busy selling arms and again our african crisis response initiative had to do with with uh, arms and working with American uh, teams, eventually combat teams, uh, to, to do what? Well, not clear. Um, you know, maybe we picked an enemy and went and got him. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's some weird stuff going on after, after I left that, that I do not understand. And you remember in, uh, oh, what was it? The, uh, in Niger, I think it was, where we lost a, some special forces people. That's where right, we, yeah, four, four soldiers in 2017. Yeah, yeah, this was long after I left, but you have to wonder, are we being, as you know, the way our U.S. military policy in Africa is, are we perceived as taking sides? Yes. Are we perceived as uh, an enemy by many? Yes. And are we perceived as vulnerable? And the answer has to be yes on that, too. So we're not doing real well with that. Now, you don't hear about... Um, you know, Chinese factories being blown up. I'm sure that they probably are some that are blown up from time to time, but you don't hear a lot about that. So um, just a different approach. The American, uh, and again, this is not the American people's foreign policy. You know, what you and I are talking about here with Sub-Saharan Africa, most Americans don't have the slightest interest or clue that we're even in Africa. And AFRICOM, they don't understand what, what is AFRICOM. Um, it is logical, of course, that they would put it in... Uh, Djibouti, because, I mean, we own that whole little plot of land. I guess it's all bases, all U.S. bases, after the, or maybe a tiny bit of French base left, but mostly, mostly U.S. And um, so we put our headquarters there. But what really is that? You know, is that, that's an operational outpost for uh, buying off leaders. You know, I, I can't see what else it does. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really an awful thing, too, because in this country, you know, in the past year, we've heard a lot about Black Lives Matter. Well, not in Africa, they don't. Not to us, apparently. I mean, I would love to see the BLM people who are right, you know, rightfully angry and and activated. This is a good thing, you know. They should take a look at U.S. policy in Africa because um, it's they don't. I don't think they would support it, and I certainly don't support it. Um, most Americans, if they found out what we were doing, would not support it. And again, you know, the institution is, is run wild. It is, uh, it, which is why I, I love Julian Assange and Snowden and these folks that are trying to help keep uh, democracies and republics, uh, you know, self-governed states, to keep them honest to the people that pay for their 
existence. Um, because because most Americans have no clue as to what uh, the, the Pentagon does and where it does it. Well, you know, I've I like to say provocative things. Some people think just to be indulgent, which is probably a little true. But uh, I also think there's value in it. I often say that you know, Africom has nothing to do with Africans uh, when I'm describing that subject, and I think that there's demonstrable proof that that that's the case i mean none of the outcomes of you know having this africom headquarters uh putting an emphasis there sending all these advisors in since you know 2008 when they opened the you know when they opened the new command uh, the the outcomes have been really awful and i've also been provocative and gotten myself in trouble saying you know after i spent a month every day in the streets uh just in solidarity, obviously not trying to be a leader in the sort of post-George Floyd protest. I, I said a few times, and it angered people. I sure hope, you know, that some of the people that, you know, tens of millions who mobilized in the streets, uh, rightfully, uh, I hope they'll be there when there's time for solidarity for an anti-war movement or, you know, anti-interventionism or all these things. And hopefully seeing this police militarization will will shake something loose uh, about the connections between foreign and domestic policy, but also on this idea of, you know, if if the lives of people of color matter, then that maybe should transcend borders, because it's clear that that's not been the, the motive or the outcome of U.S. policy, right, in Africa. That's true. Um, and, you know, one of the and I don't think it's too much to ask either that people do make the connection. They should make the connection between the our foreign policy for 50, 60 years now, um, our interventions abroad and the militarization of our police forces in, at home and the way they behave. Because there's a lot of people getting shot because SWAT teams are coming in shooting them. Now, why are they doing that? Um, that's not policing. That's military stuff. But why are they doing military stuff? Because, you know, this is a, this is a planned, uh, profitable, institutionally driven uh, shift in how our country has domestic security. It is to militarize it. And again, if you study, and I know you guys do, you know, study the, the history of empires, um, this is something that happens. You know, freedom is lost as you, uh, uh, domestic freedom is, is increasingly constrained and lost, and people are, are treated more and more like foreigners in their own country. And, um, you know, I, I think to some extent, Black Lives Matter movement has made people aware of this. Um, and, and it is it is people of color, but it's also an overall system where um, the fundamental American, the, the, just the regular working class American person, it's almost like class warfare. There, there's, a, there's Americans who work and produce and live their lives, and they're often treated um, badly by their own government. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're treated like it's almost like our country is being occupied <laughs> by these institutions. And um, I'd like to, I hope I'm alive and I expect to be when, when we see this uh, really change. Cause I, I do think um, we're due for a major, a major change. And whether that comes from a populist uh, revolt or a, a peaceful uh, decentralization of power, uh, even secession of, uh, of states and regions, uh, from the Pentagon, from these institutions that control our, our country and try to control the world. Um, no, I think that's going to happen. I do think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen sooner than, rather than later. And I'm, I'm planning on being alive to watch it and help. <laughs> it, 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 hopefully it helps that you feel 20. 
because uh, well, first, yeah, sixty's not not very old any longer, and uh, feeling twenty helps. I see it happening. I see it happening. Um, there is an education problem in this country, though. It, it um, public education is part of how we're controlled, I think, and it's not very good. We don't, um, you know, we're we're talking here about, you know, my career maybe starting in '83. So 20 years plus 17. So we're talking about a 40 year span of time. And we've mentioned presidents' names. We've mentioned political crises. We've mentioned interventions, right? That we all are familiar with because we study it. But this is not what people learn, you know, in school. They don't learn much in school and they certainly don't learn that. So a lot of folks, a lot of activists are really not, um, they don't have, the information to really make the connections that we would that they would, that they need to make that they should make, um, and and their frustration level is high. You know the BLM movement, um, other uh, popular movements, and and you can take ones on the right too, like um, the Second Amendment movement, right? Um, this is a bunch of people. This don't take my guns, right? Don't take my guns. And I have a Second Amendment right, whatever. And they're very angry. But then you you talk about. Um, one step, you know, advanced or making connections between this, th those connections aren't being made. They, they do not, they, they blame uh, a president, like Biden's going to take our guns, and, but Trump wouldn't. And they're missing the point because <laughs> Trump would <laughs> and, and presidents before him. I mean, it's the, it's the way power has, uh, is organized in this country. Uh, we think it's, you know, they keep talking about, oh, it's what the people want. We have elections, we're a democracy, or, or even that we're a, rep a representative republic. They'll, they may say that, but they're, you know, they're not believing what their own eyes are telling them. They're, they're hearing stuff and catchphrases. They're angry about things, but they, they're missing a cognitive or, or a experiential type connection that will allow them to say, hey, what the real problem is is you can't have a republic with 300 million people in four time zones. You can't do that. Or you can't have an empire. You can't call an empire a republic and think, you know, and have a set of expectations of what a republic would do when in fact we're not a republic, we're an empire. And we, you know, so, but they don't, they don't study these things. They don't learn these things. So they get very angry, but they're not sure quite what to do about it. Um, and this is a problem. This is a problem because scared people, frustrated people are vulnerable to authoritarian systems. And I'm, I am very much anti, even though I spent 20 years in the military, I'm very anti-authoritarian political systems. I, I oppose them. I mean, my concern, my, my problem with communism isn't communism. It's that it's an authoritarian centralized control power. That's my problem with it. So, you know. Absolutely. So, you know, we've taken up a bunch of your time, but I do want to make one last pivot, if that's okay, to, you know, you, so first of all, I think the whole aspect of education and where people are at on these issues and how in many cases we, we and people, other folks who even disagree with us who are engaged with these issues, we end up talking past the American people. I think that's important because, and it's not meant to be patronizing, it's just a fact. So, you know, you, you wrote about Angola. I've written some about Angola. I thought it was super clever when I made an article titled, you know, Cosby or Castro, you know, who had more of an influence ending apartheid. And I was so proud of that and did all this research. And then at the end of it, I was glad I did it, but I thought, you know, would my mom understand what I'm writing here? You know, and, and like, that's like my litmus test. And of course the answer is no. In many ways I'm like writing way just past what people even care about. 
But at the same time, you mentioned uh, anti-authoritarianism, which I fully agree with. It's why I like, you know, Simone Weil and Camus, and they were hated by the left of their time because they criticized authoritarian communism, which was kind of in vogue and, you know, in the philosophical left. But, you, you know, you did run for Congress, right? I mean, you got involved in electoral politics briefly, which I think is super interesting on a number of levels. Um, it's something I'm asked about a million times. And uh, I think probably most of us who are active in, politically at all or as public voices are always asked, you know, oh, you're going to run for something or all this. And I wanted to know what 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 made you run and what that experience was like. You know, what what was your experience in the electoral arena and, and what did you kind of take from it? Um, well, I ran in a, I, I'm in a Republican a congressional district, heavily Republican. So I uh, and I'm conservative, I guess, conservative libertarian or whatever. But I uh, ran against an incumbent who I think he was running for his 11th or 12th term at that time, Bob Goodlatte. And I used to I used to vote for Bob, but I farm after I got out of the military. We, we live out here and um, uh, I, I farm small farm, but cattle raise cattle and now I have sheep, too. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at agricultural policy and things like that. And there are some a lot of authoritarian controls that come down through the USDA. And Bob was the head of the uh, he, he was he had, had been past chair of the. Uh, House Depart uh, Agriculture Committee, that kind of thing, and uh, so he was. And, and I, he didn't, he knows nothing about farms. So I was basically dissatisfied with my representation, not on a military sense, but of course, in studying Bob, I realized he also was terrible on uh, <laughs> technology and terrible on war. I mean, he was a pro pro war guy. Uh, didn't didn't really. I, I don't know if he if he had studied these things, if he thought about them, but he was a typical you know, long-term congressman, he looked at what are the other guys doing and what do, what do I need to do to uh, keep and maintain power within the Congress? That's what he, that's how he judged it. And so I challenged him basically not on, on those issues, which are more domestic uh, district type of issues. And uh, it was during the time, it was in 2012, the, the election of 2012, that, that year. Um, and so I did get, the Tea Party was big then, and I forget where the Tea Party came from, but actually Ron Paul was bigger. Tea Party diverged from Ron Paul, but there was a lot of what you would call amongst the Republican side, uh, kind of a libertarian leaning populism. Again, the same stuff that probably got Trump elected four years ago, the same kind of thing. And, and it's interesting to see how this is not going away. This populism, this uh, common sense um, uh, de demanding uh, accountability amongst your uh, for your representatives so there was that going on so i got the i pretty much got like within the party primary i got the tea party vote and uh, the uh some of the hardcore conservative constitutional type votes a libertarian vote so i got basically 34 percent and he wiped my you know i mean he, he won handily that primary i went on so but what i learned about it was that there's a lot of uh kind of what you mentioned earlier what we mentioned about um uh, who else is out there that thinks like you do or share some of your uh, perspectives and experiences? And there's a lot of them. So I did meet a lot of people who uh, are hardcore constitutional, limited government type people, people that I would consider. Of course, I live in Virginia. So people that I would think are maybe the uh, uh, the heirs to an extent of, of uh, some of the founders, not so much in terms of their uh, slavery issues, which I think is all anybody thinks about. But, but, you know, their ideas of a limited government, of decentralized power, their fear of centralized power, their fear of uh, uh, what people 
being flawed, what flawed people will do if they're given unlimited power or if they're given in, given no accountability, you know, lots of money and no accountability. What, what will happen? They scared, They were scared of that. They were fearful of that. And there's a lot of people today who feel much the same way. And I got to meet a lot of those people. So that part was fun. And, um, you know, so I did learn. I did learn uh, quite a bit. Uh, I'm, I think when people run and what I would have done had I uh, uh, prevailed, you know, well, it would have been very difficult because as soon as you become a congressman or a woman, they, it, it is a different thing. I mean, you're it, very few people can be Thomas Massey's or Ron Paul's. Um, even Rand Paul is continually uh, criticized because he compromises on different things. So there, I'm not sure what I would have been as a, as a congressperson. I definitely would have been honest. I probably would have been a pain in the butt. That, that's worthwhile. But um, I think to run for uh, office and to win a, a seat on the Congress or a Senate, the, the, you, you have a, a platform which can be used if you're the kind of person that will use it for, for good things. And that's really the that, that's that to me is why you would would run for Congress. Yes. Do you want to represent people? Sure. But what the people want from their government is, is often very um it's often very different than what is, you know, than what you might want to do, because what people want is they want a redistribution of, of assets that have been uh, taken from the other 434 districts, and they want that put into their district, uh, for the most part. I mean, um, a congressperson's job is to help lobby for, um, you know, federal and, and, and state money to flow into your district. Uh, to create jobs and whatever those jobs are. And, and this again was something that, that sh the movie uh, Why We Fight made very clear. You know, you, you have a lot of people who are don't like war at all, but they have worked their entire lives in munitions factories, you know? Well, that's the job that I had. That's the job that was in my area. That was the best job I could get. Um, and I, I enjoyed the work, but they don't make the connection. But so we have a and this is what Eisenhower talked about, you know, the, the, really the military industrial congressional complex is very hard to, to beat that. And it's, it's in place, it's powerful, and it, it really uh, works a number, you know, on the people, on the, on the average person, uh, until that person has to lose their child or their spouse, you know, or, or a relative or a friend, uh, they don't really realize the cost of it. it. It seems like it's all good, right? It's all good. We're making munitions. We're, we're doing all this stuff. They want to believe good things about what they're doing. And we're all responsible. We all have a little bit of responsibility uh, to not be a part of it. Again, decentralization starts with each of us, right? I mean, and we're all doing it. We're all saying, uh, I'm not taking my talking points from you know, from the Pentagon. I'm not taking them from the neoconservative uh, warmongers. I'm not taking them from the left-wing humanitarian warmongers. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I reject that. So here's what I'm doing. I'm decentralizing from that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle unless, unless some kind of crazy crisis happens. Um, but it's hard to say because usually during the crises, that's when uh, people look to the authoritarians. I mean, even... You can take COVID, right? I mean, the the governors became uh, dictators, and they were in the for the most part. Yes, you hear complaints, but for the most part, people welcomed it. That was strong leadership, you know. And they said, "Well, I'm scared. Protect me, Mister Governor. Tell me what to do." Um, 
it's it's almost a human failing or, or a weakness, something we need to try to help our kids grow out of and help ourselves grow out of it. You know, a hard problem. There's a lot of hard problems here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we we see that authoritarian instinct in fear for sure. Um, and, and, and COVID to me is, is just another exposure of that. And so much of what you referenced about the role of the congressperson is interesting to me. Um, and it, I, I respect that you took that dive, that you attempted that. And, uh, and Colleen did too, right? Colleen ran uh, up in Minnesota, I believe, at one time. And it, it's, it's clearly a tough road. And, and yet you think to yourself, if we all just kind of, you know, completely reject electoral politics, um, there, there's problems with that too. Although there, there are my moments where I definitely have the Plato guilty pleasure uh, of, you know, the, uh, the sort of philosopher King being the best option, but I don't really believe that, but it's, it's just that feeling when things seem so dark. Have many many small kingdoms then it would it would probably be very good we need we need more maybe we need a lot more philosopher kings than we're right um, well neither trump nor biden really fits the mold now do now do they <laughs> this is, you know we have to you know we're all along for the ride you know but um it's, it's interesting to see the quality the quality of our uh, presidents really going downhill i think this helps people understand i, I mean it 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 helps them become uh, less knee-jerk authoritarian because I can tell you, uh, we know this from the past four years of Trump, the Democrats never, I shouldn't say the Democrats, obviously many Democrats probably voted for him, but but you know, the left uh, was upset and they said, well, he's not our president. Um, he's not our person and we don't do what he says. Great, I love that. I love that about Trump derangement syndrome because that's the one thing they should hang on to. And then you've got with this most recent election, uh, the, the all the people that supported Trump are in not all of them, but a lot of them are saying, "Hey, well, Biden, I did. He's not my. I won't take an order from Biden. I love that. <laughs> we shouldn't be taking any orders from these people, any of them, and we certainly shouldn't be taking them from from generals. Um, we shouldn't be taking them from uh, an institution like the Pentagon or the CIA. And it's not clear the influence that the CIA has over a lot of things that we think." Um, but it, it's not. No one appointed them the boss of how we, you know, what we believe. So um, all these little things are working towards a, a better end in some respects. But I am a little worried about uh, if Biden is true to what he's hinting at. And again, not because he may want to or not want to. I'm not sure what's going on in his brain, but a lot of his backers are neoconservative. A lot of the people he's bringing back into government, just as Trump did, are neoconservatives. They're they're. Uh, embedded in a lot of places. And I, I certainly don't want to see the U.S. Um, engage in more interventions or certainly uh, wars, you know, and, and yet just even this morning, I'm listening to uh, uh, a constant uh, chatter on some of these uh, conservative talk shows. We've got to get China. China's acting like the South China Sea is theirs, you know? Uh, yeah, like kind of like the Gulf of Mexico. Sorry, right? As if it doesn't have the word China in it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, that's it, it's it's such an important point. And so I guess if uh, if I could sort of bring it home in a way, uh, I'm always interested in the combination of professional and personal and 
backstory and all that. So, you know, you've, you, you did a career in the military and then you, uh, you did kind of descent and, and whistleblowing to some extent. And, you know, you've won the Sam Adams award. You, you've had this whole other career writing and, and speaking and appearing, uh, you know, in, in different phases, particularly with a, with a lot of attention on you uh, immediately after the Iraq war, just like there was a whole lot of attention on Colleen for uh, kind of what she always describes as her 15 minutes of fame, which I think was a little longer than 15 minutes. But, you know, I guess my last question is, you know, it's 2020. We're now in our fourth war on terror administration. You've had these various careers and tried different things, including uh, kind of an electoral jaunt. And, you know, what is life after whistleblowing, life after dissent like, and what's kind of next for you, I guess? You know, what role do you see for yourself and people like you now after all of that? Well, um, you know, I, I don't really sit and think about the future as much um, in, in those terms. But, you know, I'm, I'm, here, I'm like I said, I feel like I'm kind of 20. I feel like, you know, I'm looking ahead and many things are possible. Um, and I, and I, I like the big picture, like a lot of us academics do. You know, we like to look at the big picture. So my big picture would be like, uh, you know, North America, United States, what, what our system, um, what's, what's ahead for us. And, and I think uh, it's going to be exciting but also a little bit dangerous and I'll, I'll tell you this you know i live in the country i grow a big garden i can food i have a freezer full of beef that i grew you know i am kind of like a homesteader in some ways um i have a lot of skills that i've developed since i left the pentagon uh, they're not i'm not they're not great skills i'm not teaching these skills but i have a lot of survival skills that i didn't have when i when i lived in the suburbs of northern virginia so um one thing that I think, I think that trend is going to continue. And I think um, people are looking at um, what would a financial collapse in this country look like? What would in sudden increased authoritarianism in this country look like? Um, what forms would it take? And people are starting to ask themselves, what would I do? Rather than just what am I going to be told to do, but actually thinking, what, what will I do? Um, that's why I love populism and protests and stuff. Yeah, it's not always good. And many people aren't well informed and oftentimes a great deal of anger and stress and angst. And that's not happy times, but they're practicing their own agency. What will, what will I do when, when uh, push comes to shove? So um, I'm hoping to help in my people that I know. And maybe if I'm, I'm not writing as much as I really should be, I'm going to increase that, I think. But I hope that in my writing, that I can help people um, feel like they have more uh, power and more agency than they may think that they do. Um, you know, uh, uh, we're already seeing a lot of things change in our society, like college, right? It used to be college. You had to go to college, to make more money. Well, we know that's not true. You don't have to go to college. I, I have a PhD, but you don't have to go to college to make more money in this country. Um, you know, uh, there's so many things that, the evidence is causing us to re-examine some of our assumptions and that's a good thing. And I want to help with that. I want to help. Uh, and, and maybe in some ways, kind of like I did in the Pentagon when I wrote what I was seeing, I would say, here's the evidence. What is that evidence telling us? Is it telling us what they're telling us or is it telling us a totally different thing? And I think uh, if we keep our eyes open, uh, this country's in for some exciting times. If we can stay out of uh, a foreign war, um, w this country can, can, uh, I think there's some changes coming. 
And I think a lot of these changes will be decentralization of power and autonomy uh, down to smaller and smaller groups. And I think people, and I would like to help people in, in the small sphere of influence that I have, uh, get ready for uh, a greater exercise of their own agency, a greater uh, sense of autonomy, uh, more personal power over your future. And it's a wonderful thing. And again, this is like, you keep saying, I feel young. This is what a young people, a young person feels like, you know, very often, um, you know, you, you, you leave home when you leave that authoritarian family structure, right? Where dad and mom always telling you what to do and you leave home and, and suddenly it's on you. Uh, that's an exciting thing. It's also scary, but it's an exciting thing. And I think uh, in many ways, the next phase for our country uh, will depend on the actions of people who uh, assert themselves as individuals and, and don't just buy into everything they're told uh, from their elders, from the given accepted authority figures. And, and you know, I hate to say, pick on Zuckerberg or what is it? The guy that does Facebook. You know, right. Own. Yeah. Zuckerberg. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They, they pick on him all the time. Little, little uh, authoritarian figure uh, or, or Bill Gates, you know, pick on him because he knows everything. And he wants to make the world in his image. Um, but this is a good exercise. We should be we should be challenging people who assume to know more about our situation and our lives and our choices than we do. We are the authorities. We own ourselves. And that to me is a very liberating concept. I, I believe it. I try to live it. And um, I think that will be the way to help uh, us get through uh, crises in the future without without mass murder, because <laughs> that is the other flip side of it. Mass murder can come when empires fail and collapse, and mass murder comes when authoritarian is unchecked. Authoritarianism is is unchecked. Uh, we don't want that in this country. Um, we don't want to do it overseas, and we don't want it to happen here. So, um, yeah, we need to create more whistleblowers. How about that? <laughs> Uh, I, that, that is always the right answer, I think. And, uh, I, you know, I, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I, it's it's such it's kind of an inspiring thing for me because I've had my darker moments uh, at different times for different reasons. And, and one of the recurring ones is, you know, is anything that I'm doing having an influence? Like, am I screaming in the dark? Is everything futile? And then I'm like, well, I'm vaguely Irish Catholic. So masochism is kind of my thing anyway. So I'll be fine. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I think that the people I've come in contact with over the years that were really important to me in a very kind of virtual way, as by proxy, Andrew Basevich, yourself, Larry Wilkerson, people that I really just respected and felt like, oh, wow, there are others. Um, I think that I had that experience and then I just decided to be insufferable enough to write and speak about it. But there's probably a lot of others. And you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, I'm sure that you've realized that your voice had a, had an impact. And sometimes the impact is as much, and you had an impact on a lot of people, but it's more than just about numbers. It's about impacting people then who then go have an impact and all this ripple. And, and, and that's just meant a lot to me. And so being connected in, you know, now in EMN and, and, and collaborating on some level is, is, is cool and sort of an inside baseball way for me, but also inspiring. And I hope that you're right. And I think that you might be actually about sort of the silver linings and the excitement that can come from even dark and crisis times. So hopefully Trump and the COVID response, which has just been just problematic and all this, that some of the 
positives that come out of it are, you know, you mentioned how you wouldn't let the people running the government drive kids to school. And I feel that way all the time. And I had that moment where I realized that there are no adults minding the store. You know, I used to think that they knew something we don't, the government, you know, there were people who were so smart. When I first realized that wasn't true, at first it was really scary. And now I think it's actually inspiring in a way because it hopefully gets people to realize that they are the answer, right? That it's that it's us and it's the grassroots and it's the people and it's localism. And I, I, there's just a lot of positive in that. And, uh, and, you, and you've been a voice for that when it wasn't easy. And I think that some of the discussion we're having today, not to blow too much smoke up your <laughs> rear end, wasn't happening in 2008 two, three, four at the same level. We weren't, people weren't using words like empire. They weren't talking about rejecting the duopoly and rejecting both Republicans and Democrats. Folks like you and Colleen and Larry and so many others from that era were, were saying this stuff when it wasn't cool, right? When it wasn't in vogue at all. And it's not fully in vogue yet, but it's getting there. So, you know, thanks for, for that voice that you provided to so many and for working with me on this new project and appearing on the pod this has been super cool and uh, i'm just really thankful and so this has been awesome and thanks for coming on thanks karen and what you guys are doing and and what a lot of people are doing uh it's it's it, it is gratifying um so i think we're on the winning team <laughs> the long game we're in for the long game we're gonna win in the in the long game but uh, yeah, no, this, this has been absolutely great. Let's continue come back on again. We'll, we'll talk, maybe we'll do talk just Africa or just what's going on with the Biden administration next time. And, uh, and let's keep charging along together. Absolutely. This has been a great pleasure for me and an honor too. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. And I'm sure that your grandkids are just waiting at the door for you to go play outdoors. And I'm about to hit toddler time. So I know that, I know that struggle as well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk soon. Bye. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it. Almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I hope you'll pay attention, I will not be